practice. All right, so uh, let's jump into the notes and we're gonna uh, touch on one quickly. I'll just give it to you. We were there a couple weeks ago uh, exposing Satan's plans. Exposing Satan's plan. We are not ignorant of his devices, amen? So we expose his plans. We, uh, we recognize his plans. So by the grace and help of God, we don't fall into his plans. Number one, the devil comes as a fowler spreading his snares or spreading his traps. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago when I told you that in our little uh, side garage in the back, I had discovered that there were big rats in there. And uh, they went in there apparently to have babies. It seemed like a logical place for them to raise a family. And yet, when I walked back there one day and opened the little garage door, um, out scurries two big New York rats. I'm telling you, they were big ones. Uh, they grow them big in New York from what I hear. And these had migrated down here, I don't know, caught a bus or something, got down here, huge rats. I was, I was in shock, they were so big. And uh, so I set out traps. I set out glue traps. I know, it's, it's, they're terrible. But anyway, where they get stuck and they can't get away. Except these rats are New York rats and they just stuck and just drug that thing to another part of the garage and flipped it off and kept going. Literally, I found it about four feet away. And so I'm like, okay, okay, I got, a, I got something for you. I got a big wooden thing, uh, trap, rat trap, and I put a piece of cheese in it. Apparently, rats don't like cheese. All right, so anyway, they did not buy it, didn't like it, wrong flavor, something. Um, someone came up to me that night and said, what about peanut butter? And I'm like, ah, of course. They love peanut butter. Whoever you are, thank you. It worked. Anyway, and so, uh, but the rats are gone to wherever they go for eternity. All right, so anyway. The devil comes as a fowler, setting traps, enticing us. If one thing doesn't work, the cheese doesn't work, the peanut butter comes out, all right? So whatever he can do to enslave us and trap us. Number two, Satan is a sifter. He's a sifter. The Lord Jesus said to Simon, 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 indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. So, Satan comes as a sifter. We're gonna get to number five, but let me just remind you of these uh, four. Number three, Satan transforms himself into a messenger of light. Let me give you that scripture. I don't know if they have it available quickly or not, but 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15, and no wonder, Paul said, for Satan himself, transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is of no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. All right? So there are people under the influence of demonic spirits that transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Think about that for a moment, all right? And we don't necessarily just 
hear what comes out of their mouth. It is more important, what are they doing? What are they doing? And so many times uh, there are people, they're bound by the enemy and they're saying things that are lies, but what they're doing is something altogether different. And we talked about this before. You cannot believe everything you hear. And today on television, radio, you have to be so careful because it is full of lies. All right, so number four, quickly. All right, Satan is the blinder of the eyes and the mind of the unsaved. And he hardens their hearts. So this is a, these are all works of the enemy, setting traps, blinding eyes and minds. All right, and so we'll start here. Number five, it says, Satan uses delusion. He is a liar. Satan uses delusion. He is a liar. So the devil tells everybody lies on a regular basis, uh, and he feeds lies into our minds. That's why Paul says, casting down every thought that rises up against the knowledge of God. Cast it down. We don't just let thoughts come and stay. We deal with them according to their source. And if their source is uh, of the darkness of this world or the spiritual kingdom of darkness, we cast that thought down. We do not allow it to stay in our minds. So we may not be able to always stop thoughts from coming into our minds, but we can certainly stop them from building a nest there, right? And hanging out and staying there. Satan is a liar. Uh, uh, He has lied to so many people in America. America is greatly deceived. I thank God for what's happening. Uh, There are churches that are awakening and talking about awaken. We're having the awaken um, starting on the night of the 6th. Uh, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. How many of you even remember Sam Reifkogel? Anybody here even remember? Yeah, there are about 15 of us left, all right? So anyway, he used to be one of our favorite evangelists 15 plus years ago. He's pastoring a great church in Michigan. He's gonna be down on that Tuesday night, I believe. So anyway, Satan has lied to our country, lied to people at at your job, lied to people, and they have believed a lie. Um, They think they know what they're doing. They think they know what's best. And in Proverbs uh, chapter 14, verse 12, the writer of Proverbs says this, there is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, there's a way that seems right because it just seems right. It looks right. It feels right. It seems right to a man or a woman, but its end is the way of death. Uh, Alice and I uh, finally got out of here Wednesday morning at uh, out of Tampa at 7.30 approximately to Buffalo, New York. And uh, when we got there, we heard that the airport in Orlando had opened at 12 noon. It's a good thing that uh, I have a good attitude a lot of times, more so than others, because when I realize I got an hour of sleep, 
the night before. I drove to Tampa starting like at two o'clock in the morning and uh, sat there from five till the time to board our plane and then flew to Buffalo when I could have just stayed here. And they opened, and if they'd just given me a courtesy call uh, the night before and said, uh, Pastor Carl, we're going to be opening the airport tomorrow at 12 noon. We just want you to know. I would have stayed here and caught the plane at 1.30 and flew direct. I had to go to JFK, then to Buffalo. Wasn't that a pain? No, it wasn't. But anyway, uh, but anyway, it all worked out. and We got there totally surprised. Our daughters, our granddaughters. And um, then on Friday night, Kevin and Danielle, um, who they're pastoring a church up there in Toronto, he, uh, they said, why don't we go to the Chick-fil-A grand opening. The first Chick-fil-A in Canada was opening last Friday in Toronto, downtown Toronto. And when they said, let's go down there, I'm like, you have got to be kidding. There are protesters down there. It's late. I don't want to wait in line. But then the excitement. It was like, all right, protesters waiting in line, grand opening, first ever. I was there, and uh, I can say that 20 years. Oh, I was there in Toronto 20 years ago. Uh, and so we got down there, no protesters. Apparently, they go to bed early. It was about, uh, I don't know, 7.45, and the place was along the main street there. It was packed out. And the line went right around the corner. And I'm like, ah, you know, this, this, will go in a, this will go quickly. We turned the corner. Oh, my God. It's like, way. Are these people crazy or what? And they were like, let's go get in line. And I'm like, it's like two and a half blocks down the side of the building. Maybe not quite that far. But... And it was excitement. There were four guys, I, I think they were from Jamaica in front of us, uh, and they're like, uh, uh, we've never had Chick-fil-A. Uh, uh, maybe, we'll maybe just get out of line. And Danielle, my daughter, was like, no, you got to have it. It's fabulous. And I'm like, it's not that good. But anyway, uh, so she's like, no, it's great. She talked two or three people out of leaving the line. There were people in front of us that had never eaten Chick-fil-A, people behind us, two people behind us that had never eaten Chick-fil-A. I'm like, I sure hope it's good. All right, so it took us an hour and six minutes, and we walked out with our food after waiting in line and standing there. They were really efficient, and I was happy for them. But I heard people say, those people, Chick-fil-A people, they are racist and they're bigots. And I'm like, oh, my Lord. They have believed a horrible lie. Truett Cathy was one of the most mild-mannered, godly, God-loving, people-loving people on the face of the earth. Giving, and his sons are like that. Uh, he, one of the sons came to visit and stood in line, didn't tell anybody, I guess, who he was, stood in line and waited and got up there and got his food to be a part of it. And these people love God. They don't hate gays. They are just for traditional marriage, uh, just like you and I are. And, and so, yet these people have believed a lie of hell. And they have tormented themselves. 
and we had our food, and we were leaving, and, uh, and the crowds were passing us, and they saw our bags, and, and two or three people shouted out some bad words to us, and, you know, I couldn't help myself. I was like, hey, and uh, I just, I'm just glad they kept walking, all right, so I'm just, you know, I did wait. They got a little past me before I said it, but anyway, I felt really good about it. All right, so number one, Satan uses delusion. He's a liar. Number six, Satan is double-minded. Double-minded. All right, so Matthew chapter 6, 24, it says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. I know this refers to wealth or the worship of, of wealth, but it is also a reference to the devil of covetousness, all right? So we're not to be uh, enslaved by the enemy when it comes to being double-minded about other things or objects of worship. We're not to worship money. Uh, money has its place. God wants to bless you, meet your needs, uh, have overflow in your life for people and other needs and missions, uh, to give to the Bahamas, uh, whatever else. So money is not filthy or dirty or wrong. It is the misuse of money. It is the covetousness of money. So uh, money can be a good thing, but we're not to make it an object of worship. Uh, I told some of the students yesterday and staff, I said, um, years ago we had a speaker come and he spoke on finances and biblical insights into financial uh, blessing and giving. And he got up and we used to, as a staff, used to sit up in chairs on the platform during service. And uh, I was sitting up there and he gets up and he says, first thing, right out of the bat, he said, how many of you would love to be a millionaire? Well, I want to just say, how many of you would love to be a millionaire? I'm asking a question. And so, how many of you would love to be a millionaire? Every time I ask it, it gets more hands up. You self, no, anyway. And, uh, and I'm sitting over there and I'm like, I'm not going to raise my hand. I, I feel, it feels selfish. It feels, ugh, doesn't feel right. And then he said something. He said, because I'm glad you raised your hand. Then he said, you mean to tell me that you would not like to be a millionaire so you could give more, do more in the kingdom of God? And then I'm like, I'm sorry. Yes, I would love. Give me two million. Yes. Money good. And so when it's used good, all right? So the enemy wants us, the devil wants us to use it wrongly. God wants to use it good and to be a blessing and to do good and to have enough to pay your bills and even to maybe help with somebody else's bills. So money can be a good thing when it's used rightly. But the enemy, the devil, wants us to use money wrongly so that it becomes a curse instead of a blessing. All right. And now we go to this double-minded thing of Satan and his thoughts and, and his actions. Second Corinthians chapter six, 14 through 16. I started to cut this out, but I'm, I'm glad I kept it in. And verse 14, it says, do not, here's that verse we've mentioned before, do not be unequally yoked together with 
unbelievers. We're talking about the enemy being double-minded and influencing us to be double-minded with money and now being yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Beliah or Beliah? He that's, I've looked and as you can pronounce it either way. Or what part, and, the, and let me back up. That simply is the Hebrew word used to characterize the wicked or the worthless. The Hebrew word used to characterize the wicked or the worthless. And uh, outside of the Hebrew language, it would be used as the leader of the darkness or leader of the forces of darkness. And then it says, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my temple or my people. In verse 16, Temple means inner temple. The holy of holies, it's a reference to the holy of holies. We are the holy of holies by virtue of God dwelling within us. All right, so uh, I like this. I didn't put it on the screen, but I like this. It's uh, this whole thing of double-mindedness and being unequally yoked together. If a child of God marries a child of the devil, you are sure to have problems with your father-in-law, all right? So just think about that. If you marry a child of the devil, you're sure to have problems with your father-in-law, all right? If you're married to an unbeliever, now don't, don't stay right there and get what I really say before you uh, go off somewhere else in your mind. If you are married to an unbeliever, repent. If you've never asked God to forgive you, that was wrong as a believer to marry somebody who's an unbeliever. So ask God to forgive you if you haven't already and, you know, uh, uh, localize with that particular re request of forgiveness or generally in forgiveness, and I'm sure you have already. Then do what you can to win your spouse or your husband or wife to the Lord. And uh, that means uh, sharing Christ with them. That means encouraging them to follow Christ. Uh, but you don't nag, you don't badger, you don't hound them. And even Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and 1, because, let me just say, unfortunately, ladies, this was a problem back then also. It is still a major problem where women who love God, marry a man who's an unbeliever. He may be a good guy, but he's an unbeliever. He's not following Christ. He's not putting God first. And so therefore, he's going one way spiritually, and you're going another. And so it was a problem back then. So Peter says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they're not following Christ, they Without a word, 
without even a word. Because after a while, if you have tried to win them to the Lord by lovingly inviting them and saying, you know, I want you to come with me to church. I want you to serve God. If you get nowhere, then you need to stop talking. All right? And then Peter says, then without a word, they may be won by the conduct of their wives. In other words, for every wife sitting here that has an unsaved husband, uh, do not go home and say, I am light, you are darkness. I have no part in you, all right? Uh, do not, please do not, because he's liable to come down here tomorrow looking for me, all right? So I'm gonna tell him you totally didn't get it, all right? So anyway, uh, but what I do mean is you go home, you're loving, you're kind, and he says, I don't want you to go to church on Sunday. I don't want you to go to church anymore. You say, honey, I love you. I love you. I'm going to cook your favorite meals this week, and Sunday morning I'll get up and I'll cook a pot roast. I'll have it ready, and we'll come home, and it will be pot roast and potatoes and carrots. Oh, goodness, what time is it? Anyway, and so, oh, that sounds so good. And uh, make it for him and say, I'll get everything. You'll have a great lunch when I get home. And, but just do what you know you need to do as far as God is concerned. But without a word, without a word, the conduct is so vitally important. Then I already talked earlier about business partners. Uh, don't, that's why the enemy... Uh, I will never forget this, probably, uh, during the first building capital campaign to build, raise funds for this church. I, it was my duty as pastor, not duty, but privilege as pastor, to meet with people uh, and talk to them and, and challenge them about getting involved in the, in the program and, and giving. And I uh, went out with one couple a wonderful couple. I, I love them dearly. He's since passed away. Um, but we're sitting at Olive Garden, and he was, he was so desirous of helping and, um, and wanted to do something. And he had started a business. But when he started this business, there were two guys that came on as financial partners, and they took a third. One of them took a third. The other one took a third. Neither one of them were believers. And so he said, you know what, I'm going to, and he's the one that was doing all the work. He said, I'm going to go uh, and I'm going to talk to my partners about this and I want to do something. Later when I talked to him, he's like, well, um, they didn't really want me to do anything from the company, but uh, I'm, they said, well, if you want to do anything, you can do it. And when I heard that, I thought, oh my goodness. Solomon was so smart. Why? Because he had the wisdom of God. Because God knows that unbelievers are not interested usually in building the church and not certainly not interested in most cases taking their own money. There may be exceptions. I'm talking about the general rule. But they were not interested in taking the company's money even though he was responsible for it and using it to help build this church. Uh, it was sad, especially when I saw those two businessmen who, men who owned two-thirds of that company pull the rug. Why? Because they had the power, and he 
was a minority owner. So the word of God is so relevant still for today. Can you say amen? It's, uh, it never grows old. It's, uh, it's applicable to all of us today. All right, quickly, number seven, it says Satan uses doubt. Of course he uses doubt. He uses any bait, anything he possibly can. Satan can cause all of us to doubt God at times, or try to at least. Why do you think that if you your student or son or daughter goes to a secular university, goes to UCF, goes to Valencia, goes anywhere to a secular university, even sometimes to a so-called Christian university, they will walk into a classroom and they will seldom get through one semester without the professor who may be teaching something totally different in subject matter, bringing up God, the Bible, Christians, and putting them down and saying false things about them. Uh, my first year in college, I went to a secular college, small junior college, walked into a classroom. I um, was not born again, but I was raised in a church, and I knew this thing was real, and I knew the Bible was real, even though I wasn't serving God. And I walked into a classroom and the professor gets up and he says, he starts talking about the Bible. I don't even remember what class it was. It certainly wasn't something he was supposed to be talking, but he brought it up anyway, years ago. Brings it up. And he says, you know, the Bible's not true. <laughs> All of a sudden, my blood started to boil. I'm like, oh, I don't like you. And so my mama is saved. She loves God, don't you? He said, ah, it's not true. He, and I wasn't brave enough to raise my hand. I wasn't brave enough to say anything. He just goes on. And there were a lot of Christians in that room, no doubt. But he said, for instance, what was written over the cross? I didn't know. And he says, it's a contradiction. One scripture says one thing, another says another. And I'm like, I don't believe that. I don't know the answer. I don't know what's written over the cross, but I don't believe it. Oh, two or three years later, when I went to Bible college and I discovered there was two different things written over it in different languages, I'm like, I want to go back to that college. I want to walk into that classroom and I want to say, I know the answer. And you lied. I already knew that. Um, but... Folks, if you send your kids off to college and they've just started back, you better be praying for them that a spirit of lying not attack them and try to influence them and sway them. More young people probably during the college years fall away from Christ than at any other time. So you bind the enemy. You take authority over the enemy. You cast down every plan and lie of hell, every doubt that they try to sow into their mind. You, let, you just pray the word of God would be their rock and their foundation. Number eight, we'll close. Number eight, Satan tries to bring gloom and doom of mental and spiritual depression. Oh my goodness. A, um, a pastor this week just took his life. A man that had been dealing with depression and all kinds of things. He had started a ministry to help people dealing with depression. Depression can be a real thing. 
We're not to put anybody down. We're not, we're, sometimes they, they need help in and, and areas that, um, you know, I believe in the altar. I believe that that's the first place people should go. But I also believe that some people may, until they, they get things straightened out, they may need some help. I'm not talking about putting them on dope. I'm not talking about putting them on um, uh, drugs that mess up their mind. But there are Christian psychologists that, that can genuinely help people and understand the function of, of the mind. And so we just want to help people. And the altar is always a place to be when you're dealing with anything in your life. But depression, oppression is such a horrible, horrible thing that can attack us. Even in the area of sickness, I'm not saying all sickness is a result of satanic oppression, but some may be. Let me just give you a scripture, Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good, healing all, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. There are people that are sick who are simply oppressed by the devil. I'm not saying even the majority, of course, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there are some that are still sick because they're oppressed by the devil. Uh, there are some that are oppressed in their minds uh, in other areas. Uh, and once a person, you know, the altar and the word of God, th there's just nothing like it to, to absorb into the mind and the word of God transforms the mind. And so even you as a believer, if you're helping somebody, get them all the help you can, get them to church, get them to the altar, lay hands on, pray for them, get them into the word if you possibly can. The word of God will transform their minds. Our minds are renewed by the word of God. So folks, we are not to be ignorant of Satan's devices, amen? Nor his plans, nor his traps, nor his schemes, nor his doubt. Thank God we have victory over it all. Say amen. Praise God. So bow your heads with us, please.